Hello. My name is Brianna Harger, and I help with the middle school ministry. Uh, today's passage is from 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itchy ears. By having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Right, you can go ahead and have a seat. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good, it's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're having a good weekend and enjoying some snow. We got to take our kids sledding yesterday, which is still a lot of fun, even at age 39, believe it or not. Uh, it's harder than it used to be, and I'm a little sore today, but it was fun. Um, well, as you just heard, uh, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 4 today. And so if you haven't already done so, I want to invite you now to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, it'll probably be helpful to have a Bible in front of you today. Um, when I was a kid, it was not unusual for my dad on a Saturday afternoon, uh, when we really didn't have a lot going on, to say something to our family uh, like this, uh, hey guys, let's, let's go for a ride. And usually what that meant was that my dad was bored and that he was tired of sitting uh, around at home and just wanted to get out of the house. And so his solution was to get us all into the car with no real plan or destination in mind, and he would just turn on the radio, and we would begin driving down some country road in rural Ohio. Now, as a kid, I didn't really enjoy this all that much. Um, not only am I prone to motion sickness, which riding in the backseat of a car down a curvy country road is, is not great for that, um, but also I didn't really love the kind of music my parents listened to back then. Um, although I should say, for the record, uh, now both 90s country and oldies are two of my favorite genres of music. Um, it's kind of funny how that happens sometimes later in life, how you end up liking something you didn't as a kid that your parents liked. And actually on that point, one of the other things that's kind of funny and even a little ironic is that I too uh, now really enjoy going for a ride when we don't have a lot going on. And as you might guess, uh, my kids don't really enjoy that. And so it's all coming full circle here, right? And I'm pretty sure one day they'll end up loving it when they're older and their kids will be annoyed and it'll just keep on going and going in the Carruthers line until uh, they do away with cars and we can't drive anymore, right? It feels like that's where we're headed. Um, now with all of that, here's the thing. There's, there's nothing wrong or nothing harmful about going on a aimless ride on a boring Saturday afternoon just to pass the time. However, though, living your life like that is a real problem. 
You see, again, driving with no destination in mind is fine when you're just wasting time on a slow weekend, but it's devastating when you live your life with no purpose or destination in mind. In fact, this point was really brought home to me several years ago when I uh, was invited to be a part of this young leaders learning group that was put on by an organization uh, that eventually became For Columbus, which we just heard about. And as part of that group, we uh, went through several really important uh, theological books, but also books on leadership. And one of the books they took us through was Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And at one point in the book, uh, to kind of set up one of the seven points, Covey walks you through this exercise where he has you visualize your own funeral. And as part of that, he has you think through what it is you would want said about you at your funeral by those closest to you, be it family or friends or coworkers or, or church members. Now the principle or the habit that Covey is hammering home in this section of the book with this exercise is the idea of begin with the end in mind. And on that point, Covey goes on to write this. He says, the most fundamental application of begin with the end in mind is to begin today with the image, picture, or paradigm of the end of your life as your frame of reference of the criterion by which everything else is examined. By keeping that end clearly in mind, you can make certain that whatever you do on any particular day does not violate the criteria you have defined as supremely important, and that each day of your life contributes in a meaningful way to the vision you have of your life as a whole. To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. Now that phrase, begin with the end in mind, is not found in the Bible, but certainly the concept and the principle is. And not only is the principle found in scriptures, but the Bible, I think, also gives us some personal examples of someone doing this in their life. For instance, Paul, earlier in his life, in Acts chapter 20, uh, he's there talking with a group of pastors. And in verse 24, he tells them this. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, what I think we learned from this verse is that Paul had both a purpose and a vision for his life. He also had a destination in mind of where he wanted to end up at the end. In other words, Paul knew what he wanted his life and ministry to look like at the end of his life. And what he says there is that he wants to finish the course or finish the race the Lord has given him. And he wants to be faithful with the ministry of, of sharing the gospel that God gave him. And as we will see today, by God's grace, he faithfully does that. He finishes well. And so for our outline today, I want to draw out for us four points from this passage in 2 Timothy 4. Number one, we'll look at Paul's final commands to Timothy. Number two, we'll look at Paul's final warning about the days ahead. 
Number three, we'll talk about Paul's final testimony about his own life and ministry. And then number four, we'll talk about Paul's final or ultimate hope for his future. But before we jump into these and begin to work through them, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we invite your spirit's presence and power into this time. We thank you for the word of God. We ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know and obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so starting with this first point here, Paul's final command uh, to Timothy, let's look again at verse 1. Again, he writes, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Okay, so all throughout this letter, Paul has been issuing command after command to Timothy. And part of the reason for the amount of commands in this letter is very simply because Paul is at the end of his life. In other words, Paul knows that his time is short, and therefore, he is trying to pass on to Timothy as much as possible before he departs. For example, in a a sort of small and even silly way, it's a little bit like when I'm taking my oldest son to one of his soccer games. Uh, I I played soccer for many years. I I watch a lot of soccer now, and and Hudson and I have played a lot together, and so I know uh, both his strengths and also his weaknesses. And so because of that, as we're headed to one of his games, I begin to give him some advice. I begin to tell him of things I want him to do during the game. However, though, as we get closer to the soccer fields, both the amount of things I tell him and the intensity at which I begin to talk about them begins to increase. Because I I know that as soon as we pull into the field, he's going to hop out of the car and I won't get to talk to him again until the game is over. And so again, in a, again, this is not quite apples to apples here, but again, in a similar way, Paul is obviously aware that his window of opportunity to speak into Timothy's life is quickly closing. And so because of that, he's giving Timothy a lot of commands. He's also starting to repeat things he has already said. And certainly, as we come to this last chapter, it appears his intensity begins to increase. Again, here in verse 1, he says, I charge you. Now, according to commentators, this phrase, I charge you, is pretty strong in the original language. In fact, it carries with it legal connections. And it can even mean to testify under oath in a court of law or to adjure a witness to do so. Now, we do see this phrase used a handful of times in the New Testament. In fact, in Paul's previous letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy He uses it about one or two times. And as you can tell, Paul's use of it here is intentional. And he's definitely wanting to get Timothy's attention. But he's also wanting, I think, to put some additional pressure on Timothy to obey this command. Again, he says here in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. And so not only is Paul charging him, but he also invokes these witnesses and these eschatological realities which make the admonishment even stronger. 
In many ways, what we see Paul doing here at the outset is he's trying to get Timothy to begin with the end in mind. He's saying, look, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and also of Christ Jesus. Oh, and by the way, Timothy, I'm talking about Christ Jesus, who's the supreme judge, who's going to come back one day and set up his kingdom. And as part of that, Timothy, he's going to judge the living and the dead, which will include you. And so again, Timothy, this is where this is all headed. And so in light of these witnesses and in light of these end time realities, I charge you. And so as we can see, Paul's tone here is very serious. It's intense, which means what he's about to say next is super important. And so what exactly does Paul charge Timothy to do? Well, again, verse two, preach the word. And so with that, what exactly does Paul mean by preach? And what does he mean by the phrase, the word? Well, first off, this word preach here comes from the Greek word caruso, which simply means to proclaim, to declare, or to herald a message. And so certainly this is something that can and, and often does happen in a larger setting with a bigger audience, but it could also look like sharing in a smaller setting as well. Now, clearly, Timothy was a pastor and a, a Christian leader, and so this charge does have a, a particular weight and emphasis for people in those kinds of ministries, right? Like you all, as, as the congregation, you all should expect and hold us pastors accountable for preaching the word consistently and faithfully based on this verse. But at the same time, I, I think this charge is something that all Christians are bound to in, at some level. In other words, I, I think every follower of Jesus has a responsibility to preach the word. Be it sharing the gospel with a non-Christian or correcting your children with biblical admonition or, or even just sharing the word at a small group or with a friend one-on-one. -on -one. You see, again, I think all of those things at some level could be characterized as preaching or proclaiming the word. Now, with that, what exactly does Paul mean by the word? Well, it's obvious, I think, based on this letter alone, that Paul has in mind both the written scriptures, which for him was the Old Testament, but also it's clear that I think he has in mind the gospel message uh, of Jesus as well. In chapter 1, verse 8, Paul tells Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, i.e. the gospel. Later on in chapter one, he says, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Again, it's referring to the gospel message. In chapter two, he tells Timothy to take what he has heard from him and to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In chapter three, he tells Timothy to continue in what he has learned, remembering how from childhood he has been acquainted with the sacred writings, again, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then right after that, he, he look, uh, says that very famous verse we looked at last week, 2 Timothy 3.16, where he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so again, clearly Paul has in mind here both the, the gospel message and the sacred scriptures, which today for us would include both the Old and the New Testament. I like how one commentator put it on this section who wrote this. He said, preach the word refers back to scripture. 
and thus includes proclaiming the good news of the gospel in a broad, biblically anchored sense. Gospel for Paul is not only an evangelistic presentation. The gospel is the core message found in the whole of Scripture, which can be applied to uh, believers or to unbelievers, a call to faith, or to believers, a call to continue to believe in and live out the implications of the message. Thus, the way to preach the gospel is by expounding the Scriptures. And so this is what Timothy, and by extension, all believers, although again, it appears there's a particular emphasis laid upon pastors and teachers, but this is what we are all called and charged to do. And so when and exactly how are we to do it? Well, Paul continues in verse 2 by saying, be ready in season and out of season. Well, there's been a lot of guesses or suggestions as to what does Paul mean by that phrase? Like, like is he talking about the person doing the preaching, being in season and out of season? Or is he talking about the audience or the person being preached to being in season or out of season? In other words, is Paul saying, look, Timothy, I want you to preach the word whether you feel like it or whether you don't, whether it's convenient for you or whether it's inconvenient. Or again, as, as other commentators have suggested, is Paul telling Timothy to preach the word when it's easy and productive and also when it's not? When your audience is responsive and, and open and there's visible fruit, and also when they are closed and, and indifferent and it feels like the word is falling on deaf ears. Well, again, commentators and biblical scholars are divided on this. And look, if they haven't figured it out yet, I'm not sure I'm going to. However, though, I guess all I would say is that I think if the Apostle Paul were here today and we asked him what he meant based on those two different ideas, I think he would probably say yes to both of them, right? Like, I think he would probably say, look, guys, I want you to be ready to preach the word when you feel like it and when you don't, when it's convenient and when it's not. And I also want you to preach the word when your audience is ready and eager to listen and even when they are not. And look, the reality is whether Paul had in mind the preacher or the audience, those things definitely impact and feed off of each other. I mean, there's no doubt that, that when someone is excited about the word and, and excited about the gospel, that it's easy to share with them in those moments. However, though, conversely, when they are not excited, when they are indifferent, it definitely makes the job of preaching harder and less enjoyable. In fact, just this week, I was thinking about uh, what it would have been like to uh, preach the word and do evangelism during the Jesus People movement in the 1970s, when, when so many young people were coming to Christ and were so receptive to the gospel and, and hungry to learn the word of God. And, and I was thinking, man, that, that would have been a lot of fun. I think I would have really enjoyed that. And yet that's not the moment we are in right now. I think there's no doubt that by and large, we are living in an out of season moment here in the West, in America. And yet, even still, God calls me and God calls you to preach the word, to be faithful and to pray for revival. Because look, when, when you study the history of revival, which I have done a little bit, one of the things you always find is that there were people praying for it and there were people faithfully preaching the word. 
And so that's our job. That's our mission. We are to preach the word in season and out of season. But, but how, how should we do it? What should this kind of preaching look like? Well, again, in verse 2, he moves on. He says here, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Um, some English translations say they're correct or convince or rebuke and encourage. Um, John Stott, in his little commentary on this letter, uh, argues that Paul is laying out here three different approaches by listing out those different descriptions. And the different approaches are intellectual, moral, and emotional. In other words, what Stott is getting at there is that the word is dynamic. And it has the power and the ability to speak to our minds, our wills, and our emotions. And so depending on what's going on in someone's life or, or maybe even perhaps what kind of personality they have, they may need the word preached and applied to them in those different kinds of ways, right? Like there are just those people who need that intellectual argument in order to believe. There's others who, who need it to connect more with their emotions in order to believe. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. God has wired each of us differently. And so not only are we to preach the word in such a way that it reproves, rebukes, and exhorts, but we're also told here to do so with complete patience and teaching, or as the New American says, with great patience and instruction. In other words, we are supposed to, uh, we're not supposed to railroad people with the preaching of the word. Yes, we are to be firm. Yes, we are to be uncompromising with the truth, but... We are also supposed to be patient and kind and, and, and clear in our delivery of the word. And so what we see here is that uh, this is the main command or the main charge that Paul gives Timothy in this section. However, though, when we drop down to verse 5, we, we also see Paul list a few more things for Timothy to do, and some of which he has already said before in the letter. Again, in verse 5, he says, As for you... Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so again, as Paul nears the end of not only this letter, but his life, he throws in a few more commands for Timothy to obey. He tells him to be sober-minded, or as the NIV says, keep your head in all situations. In other words, Timothy is to be clear-headed and thoughtful in both what he thinks and believes, but also in his actions towards others. Not only that, but Paul also returns to this familiar theme in the letter by telling him to endure suffering. Earlier in chapter 2, he tells him to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so clearly... It appears Paul is particularly burdened for Timothy in this area of his life, such that he repeats himself on it. He also very interestingly tells him here to do the work of an evangelist. Now, this word evangelist is used a, only a couple times in the New Testament. Once in Acts, to refer to this guy uh, in the early church known as Philip the Evangelist, it's also mentioned again by Paul in his list of gifts and offices in Ephesians 4. But other than that, it's not something that is talked about a whole lot in the New Testament. 
Now we know from the, uh, the makeup of the Greek word here that it's talking about someone who preaches or who proclaims the gospel message. And it's interesting, I think, here that, that Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, but he doesn't tell him to become an evangelist. You see, it appears based on Ephesians 4 that Paul understood that there are different roles and responsibilities and even gifts inside of the church, which impact the kinds of things that, that people should spend their time doing in ministry. And so with that, you know, I mean, teachers teach, pastors shepherd, prophets prophesy, and evangelists do evangelism. Now, we don't know for sure why Paul is telling Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Was it because this was a gift that was given to him, perhaps maybe like what we see in chapter one, when Paul says to him to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And so again, is, is, is this a gift and calling that Timothy already has, but has been neglecting or is this not primary, uh, primarily a gift or calling that Timothy has in ministry, but even still, Paul wants him to do it anyway? Something like giving, right? Like some people have the spiritual gift of giving, but all of us are called to be generous givers. And so is that what Paul is saying here to Timothy? Well, again, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that because of the Great Commission, and because of other similar passages in the New Testament, which we'll get into more in our evangelism series, which Chris just mentioned, it's clear that all of us, as followers of Jesus, are called at some level to do the work of an evangelist by sharing the gospel with non-believers. It may not be our primary gift or calling, but again, like giving, it is something that we are called to do. And so that's another command that Paul gives Timothy here in verse 5, which I think also has implications for us. The last command he mentions in this section is found there at the end of verse 5 when he says, fulfill your ministry. Some translations say there, complete your ministry. Again, the idea is that Paul is exhorting Timothy to do the work and to live out the calling that God has placed on his life, to not quit to not give up, but to fulfill and complete this ministry. As we saw earlier in Acts 20, 24, this was Paul's goal for his own life. And now here he is commanding Timothy to have the same goal and the same desire. He's saying, Timothy, complete the work that the Lord has given you to do. And so these are the, the final commands we see from Paul to his friend, his spiritual son, Timothy. But let's move on now and go to that next point in our outline, which is this, Paul's final warning about the days ahead. Let's jump back here to verse three. Paul writes, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, so right before this, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And now, starting in verse 3, Paul begins to warn Timothy about the days ahead. And in doing so, he highlights for him the reason why this charge to preach the word is so important and so crucial. You see, most commentators think 
that the people Paul has in mind in verses three and four are not unbelievers outside the church, but rather immature or even so-called believers who are inside the church. You see, all throughout this letter, Paul has been warning Timothy of current and even future problems that will, that will occur both inside and outside the church. And again, here it appears he has in mind something that will primarily take place inside the community of believers. And what he says is that there's a time coming when people will not endure, or some translations say they're listened to or tolerate, sound teaching or sound doctrine. Now with that, we have to realize that at some level, this had to apply to Timothy's life and situation. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say it. However, though, even with that said, I think this is something that happens in every age of the church, and it is certainly something that we see happening in our own day. Now, we've already talked about false teaching and false teachers, which Paul mentions earlier in the letter. And there's no doubt that Paul has them in mind here as he writes this section. But here he begins to emphasize a different aspect of it by talking about the reason why people will be drawn to false teaching. And what he says is that the main motive or the main reason why someone would seek out false teachers is because, number one, they can't stand the truth. They can't stand sound orthodox doctrine and teaching as found in the scriptures. And not only that, but what, is really, what it all really boils down to is people just want to be told whatever it is that most aligns with and affirms their own disordered desires. The NIV translates verse 3 really clearly, I think, by saying this, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. You see, again, it's their disordered desires which drives the accumulation of teachers around them in order to, to say what their itching ears want to hear. On this point, John Stott points out this. He says, worse still, they do not first listen and then decide whether what they have heard is true. They first decide what they want to hear, and then they select teachers who will oblige by towing the line. And when you think about this idea of selecting teachers or accumulating teachers, it's insane to think about how easy this is for us to do today. Right? Like, I just want you to, for a moment, think about what this would have entailed in Paul and Timothy's day versus our own. In their day, people would have to find out about these teachers through word of mouth, and then they would have to travel or, uh, to wherever these teachers were and follow them around. Maybe, maybe they could, come, uh, they could have gotten access to some of their writings or, or letters, but most likely not. Again, it would have been very difficult to accumulate teachers for yourself back then, whereas today, all of us can have hundreds, if not thousands of teachers write in our own pocket or purse. Between podcast and YouTube and even TikTok, there has never been an easier or more dangerous time to accumulate teachers to suit your own desires. 
And that's besides other things like books and articles and universities and cable news networks and TED Talks. Again, there has never been a time in human history quite like this. We live in not only the the digital age, but in the information age. And with the development of AI, it's only increasing and expanding. And I think one of the biggest reasons why so many people have deconstructed or left the faith recently, or even why so many people have uh, just become unorthodox in their beliefs around the Bible, particularly in the area of sexuality, is because it's so easy to find people teaching things that fit your own disordered desires, to say what your itching ears want to hear. And if that weren't bad enough, Paul also says in verse 4 that people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, if that doesn't describe our age, then I don't know what does. I mean, I've shared with you uh, this before, but Oxford Dictionary declared the word post-truth as their word of the year back in 2016. And certainly things haven't gotten any better since then. And not only that, but with the rise of conspiracy theories and other bizarre beliefs, they have only increased over the years. Now, to be fair, we we live in a moment of deep distrust as a society. There is a lot of misinformation and even disinformation out there. And so certainly not everything that's been labeled a conspiracy theory actually is. And yet, unfortunately, and even a little ironically, we have more access to information than any other generation ever, and yet discerning and finding out the truth is even harder than ever before. And I guess all I would say to all of this is that you and I need to be really careful about what we let into our ears and minds. Certainly, these technologies and platforms have the ability to build us up in the faith and to ground us in the Word of God, but they also have the ability to undermine and impact our character and our beliefs. Don't deceive yourself. What you and I fill our minds with will impact the kind of persons we are becoming. And it's clear based on the context, both what Paul says at the end of chapter 3, but also what he says here right before talking about this in verse 2, the Word of God is to be the primary influence in our lives, the anchor that, that tethers us to the truth, even in the midst of chaos and confusion. And because of that, we are to allow the Word to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to encourage and exhort us, to train us in righteousness. And ultimately, as I just said, to lead us to the truth, to keep us on the path of righteousness, the path of truth. And when you, uh, and and, and so with that, I just wanna ask you this question. When you sit down to read the word of God or when you listen to it in your car or, or even when you come in here and hear it preached, Do you have the kind of heart posture which welcomes the word in your life to rebuke you, to reprove you, or to exhort you? Or do you only welcome the word when it says something you want to hear or already lines up with your beliefs? But the moment that it it, it disagrees with something you think, you immediately begin to look for different teachers with different interpretations to suit your own desires and beliefs. 
Now, with that, one little litmus test for this, I think, is to ask yourself, when is the last time you felt really rebuked or corrected by the Word of God, either through reading it on your own or through hearing it preached? I mean, look, if it's been a while, then you are either nearing the end of the sanctification process and your life must look a lot like Jesus, (laughs) or... You've just been living out this verse and accumulating teachers for yourself to suit your own passions and desires, to say what your itching ears want to hear. And so this is a big deal. This is a a big problem, and it's something Paul was deeply concerned about, which is why he warns Timothy about it. But it's also something that you and I are facing in our generation as well. But let's move on now and go to the next point in our outline, which is Paul's final testimony about his life and ministry. Look again at verse 6. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so again, let's, let's remember here and remind ourselves that Paul is writing some of the last words he will ever write in this life. He is perhaps days or weeks or at most months away from being put to death by Nero. And as he thinks about his life and his calling and his ministry, there is a deep sense of satisfaction and perhaps even relief. You see, again, as I shared with you at the beginning of the message, Paul earlier in his life in Acts 20 said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. And here he is right now, right before his death, saying to Timothy, I did it. I made it. And in both of these verses, he uses some really helpful And I think even beautiful pictures and illustrations. First in verse 6, he compares his life to a drink offering that's being poured out. Now this idea of a drink offering is all over the Old Testament. We first see it in Genesis 35 when God commands Jacob to build an altar. We see it again, obviously, uh, in the law with the sacrificial system. We even see an example of it in the life of David when he very carelessly... In the middle of a battle, starts talking about how thirsty he is and how he wishes he could have a cup of water from this certain well in Bethlehem. And so in response to this, a couple of his men risked their lives by going into enemy territory just so that they can bring him back this cup of water that he wants. And as they give it to him, he takes it and pours it out on the ground as an offering to the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I I think if I was one of those guys, I'd be tempted to punch him in the throat, you know, like, really, dude? Almost died for this? Now, when it comes to a drink offering, and I think even that story with David highlights this, I think one of the key things about a drink offering is that in the natural, or another way you could say it is that through the world's lens, it seems like a big waste. Why would you take something that someone has worked really hard to produce, like wine, or like these men going to get this dangerous cup of water, and pour it out on the ground? Again, it feels wasteful. It feels irresponsible. But you see, the reality is, is that all offerings and all sacrifices require faith. They require that we trust that God is doing something bigger than what we can see. 
That there's something higher going on in this act that is beyond what I know or, or even what I can comprehend. You see, I mentioned it several weeks ago when teaching on 2 Timothy 2, that, that during this time, things weren't going super great in the churches. There were a lot of people falling away from the faith. Again, there was false teaching in the churches. And so for Paul to be at the end of his life, there at least had to be the temptation to feel like it was all a waste. All the beatings, all the persecution, all the preaching and church planning, it was a waste because here it is at the end of his life beginning to unravel. And yet, as we clearly see, that is not Paul's attitude at all. Somehow, by faith, he was able to trust that his life and ministry was not in vain, even though he couldn't see all that God was doing at the time. I mean, can you imagine how surprised Paul must be that God used him in the way that he did? I mean, I bet even right now, Paul's standing next to Jesus, talking to him and saying like, can you believe they're still talking about this letter I wrote 2,000 years ago to my friend? Right? Like, like that's crazy. None, now, now look, none of us are ever going to be used by God to write scripture. But even still, our lives are a drink offering that we present to the Lord. And on the one hand, there's a real weight to that. That should scare us a little bit. And on the other hand, there's a level of faith and trust that we need to have. That he's doing things in our life that we can't see, but that are good. And that will continue to bear fruit long after we are gone. And so that's one metaphor that he uses here in verse six. The other metaphor we see that he uses here is one of departure. Now, according to Stott, this image and language of departure is being used to refer to a ship that's leaving port, or in other words, a ship beginning its voyage. And I don't know about you, but I find that imagery really beautiful and moving. In fact, it made me think of a song that we've sung here for many years called Beautiful. And one of the, the lines of the song that, that hits right as it crescendos says this, when we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring, your bride will come together and we'll sing, you're beautiful. It also makes me think of one of my uh, favorite scenes in the Narnia series in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader when Reepicheep gets into his little boat and he sets sail for Aslan's country. Again, if you haven't seen the movie or, or in particular, if you haven't read the book, uh, or if you have, you'll know that it's such a beautiful and moving scene. And I think it really does illustrate what Paul is talking about here. In fact, uh, on Friday, Faith and I were watching uh, the, this series on Amazon called The Rings of Power. And, and in the first episode, there's a scene where there are these, these elves I shouldn't be talking about this. I don't know what, anything about Lord of the Rings. You guys are going to crucify me for this. But all I want to say is there's this one scene where these elves are going essentially to heaven. And they're all on this boat just standing there. And right before they get to heaven, they like get rid of their swords. It's just really beautiful and moving. Anyway, let's move on. Um, however, though, that's not all that he says. In fact, he moves on from these two images of a drink offering and a ship departure to another series of metaphors, which actually serve as a kind of self-assessment of his life and ministry. Again, he writes in verse seven, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Now, I know some of you get annoyed that preachers use so many sports analogies, but the reality is, is the Apostle Paul used them all the time. And so we're just imitating him. And so uh, in particular, Paul seemed to love to compare the Christian life to either a race or to a fight. And in a lot of ways, I, I think both of those do serve as helpful analogies, right? Like both are hard. Both are exhausting. They both usually last a while. The temptation to quit is pretty high. However, though, if you hang in there, there's a lot of satisfaction in completing them, and they both carry with them an opportunity to win a prize or a medal. And again, what we see here is that Paul has done it. He has finished well. He has kept the faith. He began with the end in mind, and now that he is at the end of his earthly life, he can depart with satisfaction and gratitude and peace. And really, he's able to do all of this because of the last point I want to look at in our outline this morning, and that is this, Paul's final or ultimate hope for his future. Look again at verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, one of the reasons why I think Paul was able to finish well is because he never lost sight of who Jesus was, and he never lost sight of where all of this is headed. In Psalm 39, verse 4 and 5, King David prays this. He says, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Later on in Psalm 90, Moses prays something very similar when he says, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. You see, the reality is all of us are quickly moving towards the end of our lives. And when that day comes, we will either feel grateful and at peace, or we will feel full of despair and regret. We will either feel satisfied in the things that we have accomplished, and more importantly, in the people we have become, or we will feel like we let it all slip away, that we wasted our lives. One of the early church fathers used to exhort people to keep your death always before your eyes. Now, maybe that sounds kind of morbid or bizarre, but actually, as we just heard from the book of Psalms, it's biblical. And not only is it biblical, but it can actually lead to you living wisely in the here and now. Again, it's that concept of begin with the end in mind. Now, you know, I, I seriously doubt that the Apostle Paul walked through Stephen Covey's exercise of visualizing his own funeral and, and what he would want said about him at his funeral. But I do think that Paul thought often about his own death. And not only did he think about his death, but he also thought often about eternity and his future hope and where all of this is headed. Even in the book of Philippians, we see this when he talks about his desire to depart and to be with Christ and how that'll be, that would be far better than to stay in this life. And not only that, but I think Paul also, as we see here in verse 8, he kept in mind that he's accountable to Jesus. Jesus, the judge, and that one day he was going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account of his life. 
You see, when you realize that Jesus is the king, and, and not only is he the king, but he's also the judge, who's coming back to judge the living and dead, as it says in verse 1, when you remember that, it really does help motivate and inspire you. Now, on the one hand, that can sound pretty scary and even terrifying. And if you don't know Jesus, it should feel that way. But on the other hand, for followers of Christ, standing before Jesus as the judge is not scary in the sense that we have to worry about that he'll cast us away or that we'll somehow have to endure his wrath, right? Because Christ has already paid for the penalty of our sins. However, though, while it may not be scary for the believer, it still, I think, is very sobering. You see, Christian theologians debate what exactly will take place for believers when they stand before Jesus as the judge. However, though, they all agree that we will be declared not guilty based on Jesus's life and death and not based on our good works or our good performance. However, though, it still seems like based on the scriptures that there's another kind of judgment for the believer that has to do with awards, or rewards of some kind. Now, again, there's a lot of speculation around this, but, uh, and to be fair, the Bible's not super clear on it or super descriptive, but it does seem like there's some kind of reward that's beyond and not tied to salvation and that it's based on living a life that's pleasing to God. Now, we could really go down a rabbit here, a rabbit hole on this point, but I'm not sure that would be the best use of our time. Instead, as we close here, I just want to ask you to reflect on these two questions. And the two questions are this. Number one, have you ever thought about the end of your life and what it is you will have hoped to have accomplished? And more importantly, what kind of person you hope to be? In other words, have you ever began with the end in mind? And then secondly, the other question I want you to reflect on and to consider is this. Are the things you are doing today moving you towards or away from that desired goal? In other words, are the practices, habits, and rhythms of your life today helping you become the kind of person you want to be at the end of your life, namely, a person who reflects the character of Jesus? Now, just to be clear, I'm not asking those questions in a moralistic, you better do these things or you'll go to hell kind of a way. No, rather, I'm, I'm trying to help you and I'm trying to help me to become the kind of people who can say at the end of their lives, like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I guess all I'm trying to point out here is that that will not happen by accident. That will not happen by default. In fact, you and I know a lot of people in the Bible and people in the church who have not finished well, whose lives have ended with a lot of pain and regret. And yet, as long, the good news this morning is that as long as we are breathing, there is always a chance by God's grace and through God's power to correct our course, to change things and to live differently. And so as we come to the table this morning, again, I just want to ask you to reflect on those questions. You see, I love this, this last line in verse 8 when Paul's talking about Jesus and this crown of righteousness that he's going to award to Paul on that day. But then he goes on and he says, and not only to me, but also to all 
who have loved his appearing. See, a lot of people don't realize this, but the act of, in the act of communion, we are not only looking back and remembering Jesus' death and resurrection, but we are also looking forward to his return. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is giving instructions on how to take communion, in verse 26, he says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in just a moment, the ushers are going to release you to come down and to take the bread and the cup, and you can take those back to your seats this morning, and and during the next several songs, you can take those on your own. But as you do, I just want you to remember, Jesus is the righteous judge. And not only is he the righteous judge, but he's the one who willingly gave up his life for your life so that you could be declared not guilty. The righteous one who died and took on your sin so that you could be crowned in righteousness. And not only that, but he's coming back again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I know everyone's heart this morning is to finish well. Lord, whether we're 18, 28, 48, or 88, Lord, our desire at the end of our life is to finish well, to be able to say along with the Apostle Paul that we fought the good fight, that we finished the race, that we kept the faith, that we hung in there, by God's grace, that we hung in there. And so, Lord, I don't know where my friends are at on that journey, but I just ask, Holy Spirit, if there is some course correction that needs to take place, I pray that you would do that, that you would allow the word to reprove, rebuke, and exhort us. Not in a, not in a shameful way, not in a guilty way, but in a kind, gentle. Thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, Father, would you do a work in our hearts this morning? Lord, as we come to the table, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that our eternity, that our salvation is based on his perfect performance, not our own. Lord, we all fail every day. We are not perfect, but thank you that he was. Thank you that we get to participate by your grace in his death and resurrection. And so, Father, would you, would you again in your kindness, would you speak to us? Would you gently correct us? Thank you that you have complete patience. And we give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.